Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you, depending on when you're watching this edition of Hypnosis Week Live, or indeed when you're listening to it, if you've gone to the audio podcast version. It's me again, Alex Williams-Smith by birth, but known to more of you perhaps in the hypnosis world as Jonathan Royal, the British bad boy of hypnosis. And I'm delighted to have another amazing guest for you, whose mind I'm going to try and pick the nuggets of gold, as always, as well as finding out a little bit about their story of how they got to where they are today. And joining me today is a gentleman who originally hails from uh, not too far from where I am, actually. Um, we'll find out exactly where, but near to Manchester in England and is now resident and has been for the vast majority of his life in Canada, a gentleman that many of you may know as um, one of the renowned names in hypnosis training. He's been a hypnotherapist, stage hypnotist, but he's also had a parallel career in uh, martial arts, all of which we'll dig into with other things, no doubt, over the next 60 minutes. Please welcome to the show, all the way from Canada, Mr. Mike Mandel. Magic bag on one. Nice to be here. Yeah, you know, uh, Alex, this has been a long time coming. You and I have sort of brushed against each other online with conversations and snippets here and there and said hi. But it's it's been about a year, I think, before we finally got this together and I got to speak to you. Well, some good things have come out of this COVID lockdown nonsense then, thankfully. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, Mike, right. look, people who may not know, um, which will be some viewers and some listeners, because obviously some will know your story. But for those that don't, there was a time when you weren't a hypnotherapist. There was a time when you didn't do stage hypnosis. What was your journey? What, what I mean, how did you get into all this? Well, uh, born in on, at 34 Welbeck Avenue in Chatterton in Oldham. Well, that's <laughs> really close to me. I mean, Rochdale. I thought it might be. We came to Canada in 1957. My dad was ex-British Army and um, Royal Engineers, and he, he came to Toronto to be an engineer, and we followed by ship. You know, horrible experience in the North Atlantic in the fall and the tail of a hurricane. My mom, my sister, and I grew up in Toronto, age four on. I'm 67 now, so 63 years in, in Toronto. And um, just uh, was a voracious reader as a kid. And the, the real turning point for me was 12 years old, 1965. My dad was concerned because I was watching too much television. And back in those days, in England, there was only BBC and ITV. You know, that was it. It wasn't BBC Two or anything, nothing. And um, no cable, no satellite. And when we came to Toronto, we had all these channels and all the ones from the US across Lake Ontario as well, from Buffalo and New York and so on. And um, my dad said, you're watching too much telly, lad. I want you to get some books in you. I said, well, buy me some. He said, you can have whatever you like. First one I saw, hypnotize anyone instantly. It was, it was a Walter Gibson book. Uh -huh. and I got this book, I thought, this is fantastic. And I began my attempt to take over the world, which at age 12 doesn't really go that well. Anyway, I found out I had a knack for it. And our, our neighbor next door, Max Gibbs, and his brother Wayne Gibbs, they lived above McLean Animal Hospital in Toronto. Their father was a vet tech, so they had an apartment there. And I took the book over in a plastic watch, because you've got to have a watch, right? You know that. And they said, uh, can I hypnotize you? They didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And they said, sure. Well, to Max, the younger kid, he was about nine. It was a big joke. Wayne was probably 10, and he focused and paid attention. He was an amazing subject. And the record shows that um, he got his hand cataleptic, created glove anesthesia without having a clue what I was doing, and proceeded to stick a safety pin, not just through the skin, but right through the flesh of his fingertips. And they bled, and he sat and looked at them with no problem. 
and his parents uh, weren't really thrilled by the experience. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was called off for a while, wasn't allowed to proceed. And I just played with it for years and years, my teenage years. And by the time I was 18 or so, I discovered a number of Milton Erickson's patterns by accident. And it's kind of funny because here's my inspiration at my desk. This is a brick from Milton Erickson's house in Phoenix that was oh, got for the, from the Erickson Foundation by one of my students. But, you know, I, I found I could influence my friends to do weird stuff. And I had two friends, Brian and Steve, and I could get them to wrestle and fight with each other on someone's lawn on the way home from school, provided I spoke to them in a certain way. And I'd push their buttons. I'd step out of the frame. So I'm creating a, you know, a spatial anchor. They'd fight with each other. And then it became context anchored, Alex. So simply walking home from school with me, they'd start fighting with each other again. Mm -hmm. And Brian would say, you know, or Steve would say to him, Brian, it's him. He's doing it. It's him. We don't have a problem. He'd say, yeah, the only problem is you. And bang, it would start again. And so I was playing with this, not realizing this too was hypnotic in, in and of itself. And then I got a job, uh, you know, dropped out of school, went to a hippie free school. I, I skipped a grade and then and then failed two grades and no interest in it at all. I became an autodidact, educated myself and um, went to a, literally a hippie free school where you could study whatever you wanted and didn't even really show up for that much. And so I technically have a grade 10 education, which is pretty low. And um, I could, the only job I could get was as a telephone operator. Now, in, in Britain, there were lots of male operators. Well, in, in Toronto, there weren't. I was the only one in an office of like 100. Telephone sales. Type no, no, working for like like you would for the GPO, you know, taking calls and redirecting calls oh, okay. long distance. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So I was the only guy in an office of 150 women, which I thought was freaking amazing. <laughs> so I kept doing this until I was 21. And um, November 1974, I went to Minkler Auditorium in Toronto with a friend of mine who was a booking agent. And I'd known him since high school. He's a wizard guitarist, still is. And we saw the amazing Kreskin do his live show. You know, his shows were filmed at CJOH in Ottawa and then later in Toronto. And they went around the world. They were syndicated forever. And uh, so I watched his live show at Minkler. And I came home. And a couple of days later, I said to Steve, you know, I could duplicate a lot of that mentalism. He went, what? And so I went into a music shop, which was the agency that's now defunct, did some demos for some of the agents, some billet switches and some stuff with cards and so on and some forces and freaked them out. And they said, we're going to book you. Now I was making 90 bucks a week, which was below the poverty line. If I wasn't living at home with my mom and dad, I would starve to death. Oh, and so you'd been somewhere along the line, you'd, you'd been studying the magic mentalism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Since I, since I was eight. Right, right oh, since I was eight. Okay. Yeah, you've always been into it. Uh, love, love sleight of hand, love card stuff, and uh, mentalism especially. And so um, with that sort of as a formula, and my background doing some suggestion, hypnosis, whatever, my friend said, if I can get you a gig, will you do it? I said, sure. Well, he did. He got me my first show, January 29th, 1975, the Tommy Banks show in Western Canada. I was on with Philip Agee, who was a CIA agent, fooled him with a bit of mentalism. I was on with Cab Calloway, the jazz singer, and the actor John Davidson. Anyway, it was a lot of fun because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was useless at what I did. I saw it two years later, and the cringe factor was horrendous. But, um, you know, you, you know it all at that age, right? Yeah. And so 
that was the first. I came back to Toronto, quit my job, and they started booking me. High schools, universities, colleges, and then eventually corporations and bars. I wound up doing about 5,000 shows, uh, Canada, US, Caribbean, Britain, and Australia. Did all the unis in, in Britain, five tours there, and had a, had a blast doing it. And then got sick to death of it. I mean, Alex, you've done a million shows. You know how you get, have you reached the point where you get sick of your own voice on stage? You, <laughs> <laughs> it, it can get groundhog day-ish, yeah. But I think the same about therapy, to be honest. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So anyway, I quit the stage uh, March the 3rd, two years ago. And never looked back. Ended with a, a theatre show that was a blast. Never looked back. But um, in 90, 1992, a friend of mine, this is a real turning point. A friend of mine, Ron, was a law student. He was doing statistics as pre-law. And he was really having trouble studying. And I said, how are you studying? He showed me. I said, well, let me show you one of the cool things I've learned. Here's how you could study more efficiently. And I taught him some mind mapping from Tony Buzan, who's another Brit. And uh, he, he got 100% in his exam. He was blown away by this. And he got into Tony Robbins stuff. And I just wrote it off as American hype up, rah, rah, rah stuff. And what he said was kind of interesting. He said, Mike, he said, you don't know anything about this guy. And you've just written him off. That doesn't sound like you at all. And I went, oh. So I said, okay, I'll look into it. So I read Unlimited Power, mm -hmm. read about Bandler and Grinder for the first time, all of this. Didn't know I eventually would be bringing John Grinder to Toronto. He became a mentor of sorts. And just what happened was I got interested in NLP, found out I could study that, a practitioner, then went on to do NLP master in Grinder's New Code and did a course in Ericksonian hypnosis in Toronto through NLP Canada, a different NLP Canada than is there now through my mentor, Derek Bomber, who was a Cambridge linguist, and then wound up doing his two-year certification trainer course in New Code NLP. That was um, once a month for two years. It was very thorough. And as soon as I was complete, uh, as soon as I passed it, Derek dropped dead. And oh, wow. that was, uh, I got it just under the wire. So that was October, 2000, and kept doing the shows up until a couple of years ago, but. I was doing corporate keynotes and training. I started to teach uh, because I was doing shows at the Ontario Police College, which is the, you know, the entire province of Ontario. And they started consulting me to do forensic work for them because I, I had an in with them. And I was a police trainer because I'm a martial artist. I teach a uniquely British system and it, we, we taught them how to you know, do speed handcuffing and gun disarms and all these things. And I just loved it. It was um, a lot of fun. And I got in with the cops and then I started getting the calls from, you know, Canada Border Services, used to be Canada Customs and um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I did trainings in Virginia, Department of Criminal Justice in New York and, and doing forensic hypnosis. So I, I was consulted on three murder cases, um, poisonings, armed robberies, a lot of those things, because I came up with a method that does not produce false memory syndrome. And that's the difference, because as you well know, good grief, if someone's in any kind of trance, they're so open to it, to well, suggestions. Some of this I will play devil's advocate as we go along. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, my aim is to ask you the questions that people watching or listening might be yeah. screaming at the screen going, Alex, Jonathan, bloody ask him this, you fool. <laughs> On what basis are you so confident you've come up with a method that doesn't produce false memory syndrome when conventional psychological studies show and the weight of evidence is that simply sleeping and getting up the next day, the person will remember things differently than if there was a video recorded record to refer back to. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, the reason why is twofold. One is the structure itself, which I'll describe to you. Yeah. And the second is I ran it past professor of psychology, Dr. Arthur Perlini, who's uh, at Algoma University. And he's a friend who specialties hypnosis. And um, he said, there's no paramnesia with that. There can't be. Now, here's why. Because when I work with the subject, I never once even mention the case to them. I don't talk to them before, during, or after the hypnosis about the case. So I can go into the court. I've never been called to go to court, which is how it should be for a forensic hypnotist. All I'm going to do is create a bit of hypermnesia and see if they can bring out new facts that can be corroborated by physical evidence. So what I do is I sit down with the client. So there's already an expectation law there which in itself, I would argue, can create that alone, the context, because they must know through a process of consent why they're there. Right, that's correct. So that but alone could create false memory because of the, ex ex the, the, the um, psychological response of wanting to please the authority figure. Understood. Um, in the cases I worked with, typically it was the client who asked to be able to remember things. I, let me give you a case. One in particular was north of Toronto. It was a sex offense case. The woman was assaulted outside a women's shelter late at night by a, a nut bar who was, that's a technical term, who was uh, waiting for her. And he was dressed in a dress the same as hers. He had a wig on to look like her and he had makeup like her, except he was six feet tall. And it was a psychosexual lunatic. And he had been stalking her for a period of time. And so the woman came out, went to her car at 11 p.m. Now, because she was a counselor, she never expected anything to happen to her. So um, she had closed the shelter at 11 p.m. because there were no beds occupied. No one was staying there. And she came out to her car. This guy attacked her in the, in the alleyway. She screamed, freaked out, fought back, which you have to do because if you're taken to a secondary crime scene, your chance of survival is almost non-existent. So she fought back vigorously. And um, the police department called me um, five weeks after the event. Now, here's what happened. They said that she wanted to get this guy. She'd called the police, given her deposition, and they put the information into the program. And this kind of crime, there's a physical distance limitation where someone can conveniently stalk you. So I think it's something like 30 miles. Mm -hmm. They want to be far enough away they're not seen, but close enough that it's easier. So they ran the program for any perpetrators who would match not the description, but the type of crime in that area. The computer spewed out 16 different people, uh, all men, of course. Some were on parole, uh, one had skipped parole, some had just gotten out of jail. They fit the pattern. And they, they tried to find out from her, what did he look like? So they show her the 16 pictures. She says, I haven't got a clue. It was dark, he had a wig, he had makeup. They said, well, well look again, can you tell at all? Is there, is there anything here? She said, I have no idea. He had a wig, he had makeup, I can't tell. So they called me five weeks later, I do it as a public service. And they said, will you work with her and see if she can recall anything so we can get corroborating evidence? And sure, there's got to be corroborating evidence. Um, the, I think it's the Toyn decision in Ontario. You cannot take evidence that just comes from hypnosis because it is absolutely unreliable. So, and as you well know, Alex, how many people thought they were abused by their parents in you know, satanic rituals or on UFOs just because a well-intended therapist started poking into that and asking questions? Yeah. So we need... Just to but he needs, because Chatterton, where you're from originally, which is only down the road from Rochdale, where I currently am, we in England uh, in the 90s had the big, massive satanic sexual abuse 
uh, madness, and then it all got brought down largely to false memory syndrome. The yeah. irony of it is that kind of 20 years on, with the death of Jimmy Savile, the British television presenter, one of the world's most notorious paedophiles, being oh. provably linked to Cyril Smith, the Rochdale MP, and both of them being provably linked to the Moors murderers, Myra Hindley and... Uh, Ian Brady. Ian Brady. Ian Brady, who boasts in his book about having learned hypnosis. Jimmy Savile, who in his book uh, boasts about having learned hypnosis. And, well, anyway, the evidence is there. They're all linked together. And lo and behold, it now, loads of the people they wrote off as being false memory in Rochdale, the proof has come to light that they were actually victims. Mm, isn't that tragic? All these years later, you know, that, that ravages people. I mean, terrible. So, um... When, when we met, they called me five weeks later, and the woman's name was Louise, and she's permitted me to tell the story. I don't give any more information on it, but we met a week after this. So it was six weeks after the crime. We met at the shelter, which is where she felt safe. So in order to do this, it follows very, very strict deposition and uh, interview procedure. They bring a policewoman. There must be a policewoman present for a female. They bring a police videographer and the de two detectives, one of whom is going to do the interview. So... I said the method, I said, I'm not going to talk to her or anything. I'm just going to do this induction. And so she sits there and the detective is there. They've got the camera on them. And I begin just doing um, an Ericksonian induction, very subtle. And this woman starts drifting into trance. The detective is a phenomenal subject, never having experienced hypnosis in his life. He's zoned through the floor, like almost immediately. So we always joke and say, you can tell the depth of the trance by the quantity of saliva running down. So they now... The, the videographer had the sense to shift the picture like this so that you couldn't see the detective at the side. You could only see the woman. Otherwise, you're wondering why this guy's in the picture. Mm -hmm. Here's the whole procedure. I said, we just run a guided image. Imagine walking along a beautiful beach and how comfortable it is. I'm giving you the short form here. And you're looking at the sand and I'm stimulating visual, auditory and kinesthetic. I'm not talking anything about memory and saying, and you find an old fashioned skeleton key in the ground and you just on the sand, you decide to take it with you and bring it somewhere safe. Here's the implication is that this is going to open something. It's not said, it's just implied, yeah. all nice symbolism. And then now we change the scene. Now you're in a comfortable, cozy, wonderful old house. Now I'm careful because some kids are scared of old houses. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna say it's comfortable and friendly and there's cupboards and drawers and I'm changing my tonality now to sound like I'm talking to a kid and saying there's cupboards and drawers and this all sorts of wonderful things there and you can find what you need to find there's the embedded command and when you're done you can come out of hypnosis or you can waken or you can come back to this room that's it i mean that, that's pretty well it so after about three minutes she comes back to the surface takes the detective nine minutes to come back i was jokingly say i don't know what the hell he remembered so <laughs> they said to her did you show her the 16 photographs again alex she literally went like this she went it was him. And they went, whoa, 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 whoa. You gotta be sure. She said, it was him. It was absolutely him. They said, are you, she said, I'm certain. Okay, that was the whole interview. So the police went, showed up in this guy's driveway, but a few miles away, and he came running out of the house in a dressing gown and bedroom slippers. And he said, thank God you're here. I knew you were gonna catch me. The stress of this, stress of this has been killing me for over a month. I need help. They said, well, we have to read your rights. Read whatever you want. I need help. Turns out this guy was producing 15 times too much uh, testosterone. He had about five teenage boys inside his body. There was a chemical thing happening. 
and he underwent um, chemical castration, lovely term, at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto to get this under control. So that was the method that I've been using. Just give them a couple of guided images, the mm -hmm. police bring them out and just interview them again and see what happens as a result of it. Do you, just playing devil's advocate, I know personally, I know that this does have a, a real world benefit. I'm just stating that for the record, but just to play yeah. the devil's advocate card, do you think, and it doesn't particularly matter, well, it won't matter to that woman anyway, because the end result is the person was brought to justice, thank God, and got out. But do you think it was the hypnosis, call it what you will, guided visualisation, that helped to remember? Or do you think that arguably it could be that she'd seen those pictures before but didn't have a clue, apparently, at a conscious level? But as we know, everything can be taken in, so it could have been ferrying around in an unconscious level for however long the time gap was before you were there. And the, the whole environment of police officers, authority figure, and obviously in your case, hypnotist, authority figure, forget the actual process we call hypnosis, but just the authority figure level of police person, hypnotist, creating an environment of expectation may have could that have just been the catalyst for what the unconscious mind was already doing you know like when you lose stuff in the house totally totally you, know? you and i are on exactly the same page here and, and i'll prove it by how i'm answering this um by the very fact that you mentioned prestige first of all absolutely that's why i don't get bad subjects because hey i'm mike man effing dell i mean it's just you know you know the power of prestige because people know yeah. who you are. Oh, I totally agree. Engineering the environment. And here's how much I agree with you. Um, it's impossible to check, but we see this all the time. When we see YouTube videos of people doing hypnosis in the street and getting these insane results. And, but they know they're being filmed. You know, they know it. there's so much leading into this. It's not that this is done covertly. The presence of the camera changes everything too. I'll give you an example. We had a case where five of us hypnotists went for lunch at the Dominion Hotel in Toronto. And um, we got the waiter serving us and I kept throwing in embedded commands for forgetting and all of this. And they finally going, I'm forgetting everything. I'm trying to go to this table. It was just our conversation. And then tranced him out, told him he would, we would pay for our meal with a Toronto public library card, which we, he would accept. Now, all bets are off. I mean, he did. And he was very confused. And when he remembered afterwards, you see a flush of integration, he's shocked. But how much of that was the camera? You know, how much of that was him knowing we're shooting some sort of program? It's there's so many, you know, I'm with you on this. There are so many psychodynamics operating that to isolate it to the method I used or you know, the time, who knows, maybe it was everything at that Personally, moment. I believe that the method you described definitely did have a beneficial effect for her. <laughs> I'll we'll throw that in. I just want to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Well. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's, um, there are a ton of things operating here. And even in a stage show, you know, well, well, I know he wouldn't normally do that. Well, maybe he wouldn't normally do it in his daily life or in a therapeutic session, session but he'll certainly do it on stage when he knows he's volunteering for a hypnosis show i mean it's and not that's that, the perfect yeah. excuse that the hypnotist made me do it <laughs> i couldn't yeah. stop myself yeah. he made me do it 
Oh, totally. It, here's here's one of those for you. Yeah, we're on the same page with this. Uh, here's another aspect of that. I got a, a phone call. Someone actually phoned one of my agents when I was still doing shows. So this would be about eight years ago. And this man, his girlfriend or wife, I can't remember which, sister, a significant woman in his life, lived in Vancouver in Western Canada and had told him that I had hypnotized her years ago and told her that she was covered with spiders. Now, first of all, that's not something I've ever done in my life, so I know it wasn't me. She was sure it was me, and it had traumatized her now, so sometimes she'd just be in a situation and would remember being on stage and would start thinking she was covered with spiders and freak out. Now, they were obviously testing the waters to see if they were gonna get some sort of compensation for me, first of all. I said to my agent, I've never done that in my life. I'm kind to people, I'm not mean to them. I've never told anyone they were covered with spiders or it's just not my thing. And he said, well, here's what I recommend. Alex, you'll love this. This is an agent's mind. Listen how yeah. stupid this is. You know what his, the agent's advice to me was? He said, you should connect with this woman and give her free hypnotherapy just to get her off your back. <laughs> what? Ooh, and basically, by doing hypnotherapy, say that I'm taking responsibility for yeah, this? Are you out of your freaking mind? <laughs> no, definitely not. No, you can't fix stupid, you know. Uh, no, the sad thing is there are people out there that uh, in this culture will, uh, I'm not saying necessarily, well, there are. No, I will say it, the people who will blatantly lie if they think they can make insurance claims. Yep, it's unfortunate, isn't it? But it's uh, it's human nature. There are some very nasty people out there. I'm going to pick up on what you said about stage shows. Can I, I agree with you? My my example is that, um, crikey, I started first stage shows I did hypnosis wise. I was performing before them, but hypnosis wise were uh, 1990 when I was 15, mm. and they went all right. But that was largely because I'd already been performing from the age of three from the circus and then doing magic. Yep. So that, that's how I've really pulled it off through the performance side. Because to be honest, I, I personally don't believe that hypnosis exists in any form, really. Um, certainly not on stage. If, 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 you can, if, if you can walk on stage with a microphone and all, hold an audience's attention for an hour without mentioning hypnosis without doing hypnosis without doing magic just engage them then you can do a hypnosis yeah. show i'm uh, sure absolutely absolutely but especially if you put a camera in the room like you said oh, oh, yeah the moment yeah. i got back then and there were big things back then that had betamax yeah. tapes like that the moment one of them was present and i didn't exactly blatantly lie but i noticed it people <laughs> all people volunteered and more people apparently went under and they reacted better automatically. Shows just became easier. But then I found that if in the voiceover it said, you may notice there's a camera in, uh, you know, could they look big then? Now it's not quite as effective. So I do suggest to people to have a big looking thing they bought second hand off eBay, as well as the one they're recording that's quality. Because the big one looks more like something they people perceive will be a TV company. And have the voiceover say, be aware if you volunteer tonight, some of the footage may in future may appear on certain media channels. Sure. Now we can't say anything more at this time. And immediately you get more volunteers and they're more responsive and a trained chimpanzee can do it then. 
Yeah, it paves the way, doesn't it? It yeah. paves the way. And um, we have so many, again, so many psychodynamics operating. It's like, you know, like I've got about eight definitions of hypnosis. And do I know what it is? I've got a freaking clue. If if it does, when it does, does it or not? You know, it, it to me, it's irrelevant because to me, as John Grinder taught me, the test of a model is its usefulness, not whether it's true or not. Hmm, so I'll sense. use it as, I'm just using it as a model. But, you know, like all these crazy ideas like Bernheim, well, let's go back to Braid. You know, Braid thought hypnosis was increased suggestibility, but Erickson proved it wasn't. He proved people can still say no to the suggestions. It's maybe a potential for suggestibility. Here's the here's the one I love. I'd I was like these... to disagree with you with Erickson. Oh, go on. Right. And I know you will, you will disagree with me on that, and that's fine, because everyone can go ahead. do some research. But personally, my research into Erickson shows that he was the most incompetent, useless, unskilled wannabe hypnotist on the planet whose only real talent was actually getting publicity after the event and claiming successes that accidentally happened because he was actually shit and he was also a massive <laughs> he was also a massive pervert and sick twisted fuckwit who in his own writings his own journals that most hypnosis trainers never talk about openly boast about Encouraging the women to come in shorter and shorter dresses so we can perv on them. Yeah, or remove their clothing. Or, yeah, and putting them in catatonic states, leaning the heads on walls and leaving them in stress positions for hours. He was a complete and utter twat. Well, some people would say that's just by virtue of being a psychiatrist. <laughs> oh yeah, there is that as well. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things we run into is what I call the, the Bruce Lee phenomena. You know, when Bruce Lee was alive. Nobody would go near him. Everyone was scared shitless of him. Five minutes after Bruce Lee died, everybody's grandmother could beat him up. It, it's 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 now de rigueur to take shots at Milton. It's just the way it is. But um, I've learned so much from his techniques. In fact, I, I said that's why that's why I keep the magic brick here. <laughs> his own writings contain the evidence of his incompetence. What good reason is there to take over four hours? having a casual conversation with somebody to, at the end of it, declare, as he does in one of his own journals, and finally, she went into trance. Right, and I can answer that easily. Go no, open to a pattern interrupt and take five minutes. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. But let me, let me give you two counterexamples to this. First of all, a friend of mine said years ago, he said, oh, the Beatles weren't that good. So. You know, naturally, I want to punch him in the face. I saw them live in 1964. I said, you're wrong. He said, oh, no, like their music's not good and this and this and this. I said, they had permanent validity, changed society, reflected society, brought in. I went through all this stuff. He said, oh, no, no, like U2 is a much better band. Now, whatever you think of U2, he was talking about their production. So he's expecting a band from the 60s to operate at the same level of production of, you know, a band that's in the, the new millennium. I said, I said, you're comparing apples and pears. We've got to remember. Erickson was a psychoanalyst. That's what he came out of, this horrible model that everything's going to take a long time and you've got to drag your feet. I mean, no wonder him and Elman hated each other. It was totally different models, but he didn't have the PGO spikes and so on. He didn't have that. And um, Casey, here's the second example. About eight years ago, I was in Boston doing a keynote. And um, I was blessed that one of my students who's an OBGYN came out, picked me up at the hotel, and we went and had some Pinot Noir and talked about hypnosis. And it was a great trip. But on the way down in the plane, there was an elderly woman sitting next to me. I mean, she was probably about 80, lovely Irish accent. And she told me her life story. Now, her husband had passed away, 
I think two or three years previously, and Boston was always their favorite place in the world. She had not been back since he died and wanted to see it again, but had this trepidation of being where this was so important. She was afraid it was gonna make her very sad. Now, on the plane, there's a frail old woman next to me. I'm not gonna PGO spike her, slam dunk her into trance and have them coming and tasing me when I get off at the other end of the plane. But I could say to her, you know, it reminds me of a story I heard some time ago. And as you realize, and I switch into Ericksonian language, I gave her a metaphor. She went, oh, that was lovely story there, young man, lovely story. I said, thank you. She said, do you believe in prayer? I said, I do. She said, can I pray for you? I didn't want to say she's Roman Catholic and I'm a Presbyterian, but she's got my hand and she prayed for me. I said, that's why we had the Protestant Reformation to get away from this. But she prayed for me and she got off the plane and she's getting her luggage. She came over, put her hand on my shoulder. She said, it's just so wonderful. I'm not at all worried about going. I'm really looking forward to this. And I did my best Ericksonian. That's right. Now, I'm using a tool that I can slip in under the radar with her. And that's the kind of stuff I do all the time when I'm not going to have a chance to do formal hypnosis, but I can present ideas and concepts and activate unconscious resources. And, and have the person change. Of what people refer to as Ericksonian hypnosis in the right context, I totally agree. It's very valuable. Hmm. I just find it a great shame that everyone refers to Erickson as being the, the person who apparently created that approach because he didn't. Well, there's, there, you're right in the sense um, that there is, we, it goes back hundreds, thousands of years, mm. telling stories around cave fires. I mean, it's always been there. But what I find well, interesting is directed hypnosis or what could be as closely aligned to hypnosis. The um, Native American Indians, the shamans, sure. had directed eyes closed and eyes open, visualization, chanting, processing. Yeah, chanting drums, aboriginals in Australia, still the same thing. That's what I mean, you know, around cave fires and that. That's where all this came about. The storytellers of the tribe, the wise women and the shamans were the ones who did the trance work. And, you know, we look at the bone pointing that the aboriginals of Australia do where they, they get the guilty party and they go around and we talk about prestige. The guy's dressed up with all the scary shit. And he's got a, a leg bone. And you know when he points it, you're going to freaking drop dead. It's like you've got to get in and neck crank him first. It's much, much safer. <laughs> but um, what I find interesting, Alex, is also the whole thing about and the dyed in the wool Ericksonians. Now, what I do is I see everything on a continuum. I'm neither direct or in, I'll be as indirect as possible and as direct as necessary. I'll go into full on slam dunk, Gilboyne, Dave Ellman, you know, George S. Brooks, whatever, if that's what it requires. But I'll also slip along this continuum to do some of the more covert stuff. And I think a full box of tools is good. Having said that, I wanted to attend the Erickson conference in uh, the United States, but they're so inbred and tight in this man's opinion, I, I couldn't even attend. You know, like it's, it strikes me interesting. There were those are the ones who lock it down and this is our secret and this, it's, it, this is all knowledge and you know as well as I do. It's all out there. All the stuff we do is out there. It's all available to anybody. It's, and I think you're gonna agree with this one. It's never been easier to learn good hypnosis than now. And it's never been easier to learn absolute crap stuff that's supposed to be hypnosis than right now. Yeah. What do you think? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's just so easy for, sadly, there are way too many, way too many, and 
I'm going to use NLP as the example, but it's happening in hypnosis as well. And I know they're one and the same bloody thing, yeah, really. Yeah. But yeah, huge over, huge overlap. NLP yeah. was really the first proper multi-level marketing. Do your practitioner, master practitioner, trainer, trainers, then go out there and start teaching people when you've no real fucking world experience yes. whatsoever. So there's a blind leading the blind. And that's gone over into the hypnosis world. More 95 to 98% of hypnotherapy trainers on this planet haven't, if they've actually seen in the real world more than 100 real clients, I will plant sawdust and juggle water. I'm going to use that line, just so you know, but I will credit That's you. Fine. That it's It's so true. You know, uh, uh, so many script readers, Chris, Chris uh, Thompson and I, my business partner, brilliant man, um, mechanical engineering degree, MBA, was a stock analyst, um, just incredible. But he quit his job nearly 10 years ago to work with me full time, which was the best move I ever made. And super nice guy to do anything for anybody. But we had this discussion. We went to a hypnosis convention, a huge, the biggest one in the world, Hypnothoughts Live. And we've been five times now. I did the keynote there last year. And uh, it was I a real blessing for me. Hypnosis conventions. What? Before you explain what happened, there, I just don't get hypnosis conventions. Oh, it's fantastic. You I get, get a lot of meeting up to have a yeah. beer and having something to eat. Yeah. I, don't, I would never dream of paying for a ticket to well, go <laughs> and socialize with other people in my business who I could go and have a beer and a meal with anyway. Here's the thing. Because it's the biggest, you get a 1,000 attendees. You get structured seminars and that from some really skilled people. But I don't we went to the first one. Charlie, if you're doing it in the real world already, honestly. No, you get, you get some gems. You get some gems, you know, and, and yeah. that's where I met some really solid people. But having said that, Chris and I went to our very first thing to watch another trainer just to see what they're doing. And this woman could have been a man, but it wasn't in this case. Got to be so careful. Um, <laughs> this woman was a hypnosis trainer and she worked with a volunteer from the audience. And she was 40, by my watch, Alex, 40 minutes, excuse me, 40 minutes into it. And she was still doing her induction. Oh. And, you know, how many bloody flights of stairs can you walk down and write your name on beaches and have the waves wash it out and sit in colored couches and then it just on and on and on. Now, fortunately, there is the other end of the spectrum, too. But you know what drives me nuts is people teaching other people who pay them to teach them how to read scripts at someone and never react with a human being, never connect with someone in any kind of psychodynamic loop, but just sit there staring at their notes reading. I mean, To be honest, on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other, it depends how the, what, what they're teaching them to read. But the fact is, once the client's got their eyes closed, that's the key. What you do before they close their eyes and when they open their eyes, but once their eyes are closed, as long as you don't rustle the pages so they hear them, <laughs> Or more intelligently, you have it on autocue software on your laptop uh, that moves like a TV screen. Then, frankly, I would argue that having a carefully honed script where the pauses are all in the right places, the embedded languages is there, where you can never trip up and fuck up what you're saying. Yes, it's all well and good to impromptu, be able to do it and improvise. I would totally recommend that. But in terms of treating people, um, you can't improve on a perfect script that you get perfectly precision right 
every time. As long as Except. the client doesn't know that you're reading a script. Because to them, right, that, right. that's no different once their eyes are closed. See, for me, a script is training wheels. And um, they're great for teaching people how to develop language and to be able to interact. But for me, it's the running things unconsciously, engaging in a psychodynamic loop where I'm consistently calibrating that person and running the language unconsciously. It's just a different approach. But to me, it's, it's always, I've seen so much bad stuff with scripts. I can see using them as training wheels. So people well, there's get loads the of scripts that are absolutely dire crap, I agree. <laughs> Obviously that element comes into it, yeah, without a doubt. What uh, was the sawdust line before I forget? Tell me the sawdust line again. Plat sawdust. Or juggle water. Yeah. You mean plat it like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or juggle water. Yeah. Perfect. It's um what was my point there? Yeah, the, the um What else see, did you just I would remember? argue that people that say they don't use scripts are actually using scripts. Now I know what you mean by definition, I'm guessing, is that you don't have every single word laid out there. But the fact is that once you learn a structure for something, whilst you may change the odd word here and there, generally speaking, over time, I, I confidently would guess that if you were to do 10 different people for the same phobia and they were videoed, and you were to look back at those videos and you're apparently doing it without a script, that looking at those 10 videos for 10 different people but with the same phobia, that the vast majority of it would be practically the same stuff done in pretty much the same order with almost more than you're probably consciously aware, practically. The, the reason the reason I disagree, the reason I disagree is when I was a therapist, mm -hmm. I would covenant with myself to never even do the same technique twice in a week. That was That's how I got good at it. It just, apart from all the stage stuff, just always being being trained by the best and just switch. I've used that this week. I have to use something else. Derek Bomber taught us that. And it was brilliant. On our day of testing with the master course, he said, what would, what would be the best method to work with this person? So we'd answer and he'd say, okay, you can't use that. You have to use a secondary method. By the end of the test, he's saying, what would never work with this person? Well, this, make it work. So it's all, to me, it's all about flexibility. It's like if I have to face off against some lunatic in the street who's you know, got it in for me or something. If I go into some structured karate kata, he's gonna kill me. But when I can flow with the situation, get inside, choke him, slam him, I'm using principles instead of using this, 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 and this. And that's why I run hypnosis to its principles. Now that's and so I may switch. Coming up because you've just mentioned martial arts, which we're gonna to move into in a second. But regarding uh, what you just said therapeutically wise, I would, uh, well, no, well, yeah, I would argue, because it's my sincere experience and belief of the past... As a mismatcher. <laughs> 30 years. Yeah. That, um, and from all people I've taught to do it this way, their experiences as well, that it doesn't matter one blind bit what you do once that person believes they've been hypnotised. Once their eyes are closed and they believe they're hypnotised, as long as what you've done makes them believe they've been hypnotised, what you do then is pretty much irrelevant, largely. Any important seeming ritualistic process, as long as you, the hypnotist, have enough conviction in delivery of it, doesn't matter what shite you do. And, uh, you know, with random members of the public, I have in the past at events 
to take the piss toward everyone when this client comes in i am literally going to get them to stick these pieces of celery in each earlobe and up their yeah. nostrils and done the most ridiculous things just to prove the point that it doesn't matter what shite goes on in the middle and they have at the end of it helped the spider and not been panicked when they were because the middle bit doesn't matter the blind bit 99% of it's done before they even book a session with you. By booking mm. the session with you, they've decided you're the person that will do it for them. Well, let's go back to even beyond that, you know, the, the number one trait that apparently causes people to change is whether or not they like the therapist. <laughs> it's like, it seems like the method is, is absolutely secondary, you know? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, yeah. Now, martial arts, because that's, like, well, that's a different matter entirely, exactly, as you've just said. Now, there, with what you're presented with, you've got to react definitely accordingly. There's no, no arguments there. I noticed that you, it, it, British Jiu-Jitsu, is it? Yeah, yeah. For people who may not have any background knowledge of martial arts, how is that different from Jiu-Jitsu in general, karate? There's yeah. so many different forms and stuff. It's, it's way different. Um because it works, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's uniquely British in, in the sense that I, I did Kung Fu and Hapkido and a bunch of things when I was young and took a bunch of injuries. And um, British Jiu Jitsu comes from two people, one of whom was my sensei, Bill Underwood. Bill Underwood was born in Liverpool. Uh, he was five foot two and he shrunk to five feet tall as he aged. He died in, at age 90, just north of Toronto. He'd come to Canada. I went to study with him. I heard about him and went in and he was in his 70s at the time i was a fit guy in his 20s and he said his wife doesn't even glance over he said come at me with your best attack i thought i'm going to kill this guy so i shuffle sidekick and he just taps my heel sends me flying kicks me in the crotch from the back and he said oh, it's quite simple look i don't even take my glasses off and he put me through living hell for about half an hour and i said where where do i sign because this stuff works well he'd refined it in the first world war he escaped from the germans he was in eat for the gas attack i mean he did it all he did the hand-to-hand -hand killing cheese wire and stuff and but what happened was back it up a bit um shanghai was under the control of the brits earlier on and what was happening was the police were getting killed by the the gangs at such a high rate it never even made the papers anymore police were murdered constantly mm. they sent another englishman uh, William Fairburn in, and he was immensely um, brilliant. He looked like a school teacher, uh, unlikely. And he studied with the Empress of China's Kung Fu master. And he was the first white man to get a black belt in Judo at the Kodokan in Japan. Hmm. They brought him in as a policeman to sort out Shanghai. He was on the street, gets in a street fight, gets the living shit kicked out of him and goes, I've got to rethink this. <laughs> so he did. And he created a system that actually works in the street. Unconventional strikes. You don't punch, you'll break your knuckles. Fingertips in the eyes, choke, twist the neck, all this stuff. And that's been the sort of the go-to for Royal Marine Commandos, SAS, and so on for many, many years. Unconventional strikes. Because they work. You know, I, I don't have to get in and spin. I just kick the guy into the kneecap because I wear steel-toed boots. <laughs> that's the start. Now I can get him on the ground. So British Jiu-Jitsu is a unique combination of the grappling techniques of Bill Underwood and the striking techniques of William Fairburn and put the two together. And I tried for years to teach it. Nobody wanted to learn it because it hurt like hell. And then I found a couple of people who did. One was Adam Sutherland, who was, um, he's my protege. 
and he's the the best in the world. He works in a, a very dangerous bar five nights a week till 2 a.m. And he's every night he's taking syringes, guns, knives off people, and he's, he pressure tests it every night. But it, it's Britain's contribution. And it's um, I went back to England and taught it. We actually did a demo at the Royal Armory in Leeds, the museum there. Uh -huh, yeah. And it made made the London Times and it's British Britain's system comes back to England where it belongs. And, it was just fantastic, but I love it because I, you know, I stay in shape. I'm 67, but it's such a great, it's a great set of techniques. There's nothing it's fancy. The, uh, pressure point used in it. There's 12 primary pressure points. Um, there's throws, there's trips, there's chokes, and um, a lot of horrible strikes. You know, breaking Did the you hyoid bone. Use your martial arts knowledge in stage shows because there's a guy called George Dillman. I don't know. If oh you... yeah. Yeah. Who teaches the pressure points? I did a course with him years ago, and yeah. I know there's varying opinions, but I can honestly state there are a couple of techniques that on occasion with, shall we say, awkward bastard trouble-causing subjects who just got up at drunk-type events wanting to make the hypnotist look a twat, yeah. ended up coming round up off the floor going, uh, um, what's gone on? And because of the context, they can only logically assume in their head they must have been hypnotized as opposed to um, having certain pressure points. Well, yeah, the carotid sinus is the primary one for this. Because well, the carotid sinus, you, you've got... as well. Yeah, so it's brachial tie-in, brachial plexus tie-in. So with the carotid sinus, you've got T1 to T3. You've got ventral ramus, um, glossal pharyngeal nerve, hyperlysis. It's all there, you know, it's all the neurology behind Don't it. Don't do this, because in the hypnosis show in law, it's classed, if you use the carotid artery or any of the others, can actually be classed as attempted murder. Certainly oh, in Lateral vascular neck restraint, it's an unusual thing because that used to be used by police in Canada. It's a very effective technique for women to use, police officers, but uh, because of the danger of killing the person, you don't know if they've got a malformed carotid artery on one side and you put them in and lock them up, they can drop dead. And so police stopped using it in a lot of police services, but amazingly, the public still can. So it's... Um, yeah, I like what's work, what works. I've seen some Dillman stuff, and I, I've discussed this with friends. Some of it is classic pressure points, but other stuff, these no-touch knockouts, and I touch here, here, and there, and then, oh, it didn't work on this reporter. Well, you might some have lifted it, your toe. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to work outside of the... Um, well, sadly, it's the same as what a lot of hypnosis teachers teach. It only works in the bloody training room with people That's right. have a lot of money to be there, so they yeah. want it to work because they don't want to feel like they've been ripped off. For sure. It, it's exactly, we're back to social compliance again and the prestige of the teacher. I mean, when Dillman comes up to some guy who really believes this and does a do-do-do touch, of course they're going to fall on the ground. I mean, of course all this is going to happen. And there are the real thoughts. I, I saw one of his students working with um, one of his high-ranked students with these one-touch knockouts. And I'm not taking a shot at George Dillman. I'm just saying a lot of this has not convinced me. Uh, working with this woman, she was a reporter, and he said, yeah, I, I'll do this on you, this one-touch thing. And what he did was if you look, he actually backfists her on the mandibular angle here. He, this guy, like, oh, he actually hits her in the jaw. And she, he said, see, that's a one, now you look, feel disoriented. She said, you just hit me in the jaw. Like, he wasn't a one touch anything, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it, it's mad. But earlier on, if people watch this back, or listen, especially if they watch it back, because then they'll see you kind of visually move your hands as you were explaining. Yeah, yeah. 
right near the start when you were talking about martial arts, it reminded me to mention confusion, uh, disorientation and confusion, although NLP and hypnosis, we might call it a pattern interrupt. Sure. But, um, obviously, elements of that get used in martial arts as well, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as we do any kind of strike that's disorienting, especially an unconventional strike, that we're not using fists. I said, I've broken my knuckles, I've broken my ribs, broke my nose, all these things. But the stuff now, you know, fingers in the eyes, if you can hold a grapefruit, you can hit something, get out of just about anything. All the stuff that, you know, they do in the cage, the octagon, all the things that are illegal, that's where the British system starts. Like we start with the stuff you're not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And I was in Las Vegas at this, the conference and I got in the elevator. I'd just done a training and I had a sports jacket, jeans on and my steel-toed blundstones, which look like blundstones. And these two 20-somethings, you know, get in with their girlfriend and they want to show off. And just then Chris leaves the elevator on his floor and I said, okay, I'll see you at supper time. The door shuts and the guy looks at me seriously and he says, and it's the whole thing about congruence, which you'll get, I know. He says, well, you're in trouble now. You're stuck in here alone with us. Let's scare the old guy, right? I smiled and I said, I guess it depends on how you define trouble. I said, these are steel-toed <laughs> boots. <laughs> so they're steel-toed boots and they both went, oh, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, they do try it on, don't they? They do try it on. How <laughs> uh, very British. It's yeah, horrible. I, we, we segue, but it's interesting that, which came first, by the way, for yourself. Um, What's that? Which, which came first, massively speaking, martial arts or hypnosis? Same time, age 12. Uh, Same time. Yeah, judo at age 12 at the YMCA. Yeah. Just can I see, you know, commonalities between the two? So many things have that. You know, you look at a lot of hypnosis trainers. They do mentalism as well, and they do martial arts. It's just across the board. What got you into the mentalism? Um... Well, long story cut short, I started off as a circus clown because I was born in the circus. Yeah. Then I rebelled against that because um, I got bullied at the schools I went to for being the odd one out. So I blame my dad for that. But I still wanted to perform because of the money and, and the audience. And my hobby had been magic, so I moved into the magic stuff. But then the magic book company sold books on cold reading. Um apparently being psychic, which I'd read up. And there was a psychic fair in town when I was about 12 that I happened to go along and I observed and noticed how much cash they were raking in. And the next time it came to town, I showed up with my tarot cards blatantly. I was, I was still only like, I wasn't even quite 13 at the time. And I went off <laughs> the table and this woman, Zara Bray, she said, well, do me a reading first. And I'm sure she expected it to be complete shite. Yeah. She was stunned because she as good as said, you're better than most of these. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be because I'm using cold reading techniques and magical techniques. They actually think they're reading tarot cards. Right, right. Um, you're using them as the trappings, the, as the rationale for it, but you're doing your cold reading instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd read books like Gail Shinney's Passages and stuff. So, you know, everyone has basic same. And. So that, I figured, well, if we could take that to the stage, and the obvious next step was the mentalism. So that's... Yeah. They saw... But they all, they all work largely. All right, yeah, mentalism's got more sleight of hand and trickery, do you know? Yeah, yeah. But in terms of impact on audiences, shall we say, they have a bigger impact when people are bought into you as the 
the fall yeah. of the yeah isn't that true did you do mentalism before a stage show like as i mean as part of your your live performance you'd open with mentalism and then do the hypnosis no uh th th there's been rare occasions where people have asked for that and i have but generally speaking it's either a mentalism show or the hypnosis show i know there's people out there who take a bag of tricks along as it were in case they don't get responsive volunteers that's pretty common yeah yeah as sort of as a backup let me tell you the most blatant mentalism thing i ever saw that nobody saw through it was an old guy called bill mcclory i worked with him in 1976 i'm sure he's long since dead he did a mentalism show and he had a pad of paper so it was a smaller one than this uh -huh. and he got people to write down you know a number write them all down and he says to someone come on up here all I want you to do is add up the total. Now he's got his prediction on the stage, standard, standard mentalist fare. But this was his entire thing. As they're coming up on the stage, he just turned the bloody pad over and it was on the back. And uh -huh. he, he had the balls to hand it to them. And they, no one even, it was his confidence. No one turned it over and looked. <laughs> Isn't it? And that's the key, confidence largely. Yeah. Salesmanship and confidence. You know who's really good at mentalism is Michael C. Anthony, one of my two best friends in the world uh -huh. out of Florida, great stage hypnotist, and his mentalism. He can sell it like nobody I've met. I learned, I've been doing mentalism for years, and I learned so much from him just in the performance aspect, because I'm more of a teacher than I am a performer, and he's more of a performer. But he does the thing at the end where he talks about stating, restating the obvious. You know, so you sat down there and at no time have I even stepped near those. And he sells it so hard that when they turn it over, you know, the card over, it boom, just absolutely freaks them out. So much showmanship, isn't it? Which is partly completely different than what Mike mentioned before about being so clean in your language that you don't create false memories. A mentalist will purposely reframe back to people what took place because there's been a time delay. So then it embeds in the red a false memory that you never went near them or you never touched them or totally. in fact you actually did. Totally. That, that's, I created an effect I did in a, a thunderstorm on the northern coast of Newfoundland, right where the whales were coming through, near a lighthouse. We were doing a documentary. Two guys, a sound man and a friend of mine, we sat at a coffee table. They found a deck of cards in the sitting rooms. They weren't my cards. I got them to choose ace, two, and three of a suit. I think they picked uh, diamonds, whatever. Each of you think of one you like, they do, the remaining ones for me, which one do you want? I want the two, okay, I want the three, okay, I'll take the ace. You put them in the deck, shuffle them, they do. This is their perception of it, right, Alex? Not what happened. Yeah. And we think the card case is still across the room on the bureau, so it's 15 feet away. Now, what was your card? Two of spades, you, or two of hearts. You just shuffle. Take your two of hearts out, okay? He does. Now you take them, shuffle them. What was your card? Uh, three of hearts, okay? Take your card up. There's a three of hearts. What was mine? You with the ace of hearts, you assign me the ace of hearts, right. Okay, shuffle them. Now take the ace of hearts out. Of course, it's not in the bloody deck. Uh -huh. say, get up from the table, go across the room, bring the card case back. Now this is a, an old deck that's sitting in it. You'll verify, I've never left my seat. You never left your chair, you never. I mean, it's unbelievable, the recapitulation, emphasizing what we want them to remember with the time misdirection, totally agree, and de-emphasizing what we want them to bloody well forget. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at the time because I've got to edit this to the other bit. For people watching or listening, if there's a slight blip where it might appear, did you say that before or he didn't? It'll be because I've had to put together two little bits. So we are we are literally about one and a half minutes over 
uh, the time. So I'm going to ask you finally the question that I ask everyone at the end right. to finish up. Um, obviously, by the way, viewers and listeners, uh, where this audio podcast is or the video below it will be links to Mike's websites and social media, uh, YouTube channel and all those kind of things and any other links he wants to email me before tomorrow morning when I put this live on the internet will be below. I encourage you to go and check out uh, his stuff because he's got tons of free stuff out there for you to try before you buy, so to speak, um, as well as loads of other good stuff on offer. So we're going to ask him the final question that we always do. There's no right or wrong answer, just as there hasn't been in any of this. No pressure. <laughs> no right or wrong. But um, what if, 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 bearing in mind we haven't got much time, what would your key, what's the key thing to somebody who's watching or listening and maybe starting out that you'd give them in terms of ad advice? Oh, um, simple. real simple. Never stop learning. Never. <laughs> but just continuously learn and learn and learn. We never arrive completely. Just keep filling your brain with great stuff and uh, let it all interact and interlock and change the world. Excellent. Thank you very much, each and every one of you, for tuning in to watch this either on YouTube or Vimeo or via the mailing list or on one of the various audio podcasts. If you can like it and share it, it does help get this message much further, far and wide. And of course, once again, do check out the links that will be below this video or audio podcast mm -hmm. for Mike's social media platforms and his website. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. It has for me too, my friend. I'm glad we finally connected. All the best to you. God bless. Take care. We'll speak again. Take care. We sir. will. Bye -bye.